Good morning. It's a very strong response. Thank you. I'd like to start this morning with the tale of two lawns, believe it or not. Uh, when we were in Dallas, uh, going to school up there, uh, I lived in a, a part of Dallas that had a, a decent-sized backyard. And after about two months of living there, I realized that I was an amazing keeper of lawns. Uh, this, this lawn was always green. It was always lush, no matter what we did to it. We had gatherings in the backyard repeatedly. Um, I resodded this once or twice, and the sod took immediately. I concluded that I was amazing. It's doing all the right things. Now, then I moved to Austin, and it's not quite the case. Uh, my front yard resembles a mottled desert wasteland full of clover. My, my backyard is kind of the opposite. It's usually a semi-Houston-based swamp. And, and that wake-up call that it wasn't about what I was doing with the lawn that made it grow was helpful, right? Because Dallas, Austin, it really wasn't what I was doing. Uh, something else was making that grass grow. And it, it doesn't mean I shouldn't mow. It doesn't mean I shouldn't water. But it's not always me being the one responsible for that growth. And that's a, a great reminder, uh, especially as summer comes on. Now, grass obviously matters very little, right? It's pretty inconsequential. But we tend to do the same thing as we try to follow Jesus. Uh, we realize that he's the reason for our growth, that he is the reason for everything, and that what we do doesn't really matter because he's done it all, that, that uh, we originally have touch with that, but over time, we lose that vision. We, we think, oh, if I do X, Y, and Z... I'll be okay. It'll be good enough. And so it's good to have a reminder that it's Jesus we follow and not process. It's Jesus we follow and not doing the right thing. And that's what we'll be looking at today in Mark. We'll find a reminder of how following Jesus actually works. I'm going to read all of Mark chapter 11, 1 through 25, and then we'll talk about it. As I read it, I want you to listen for a couple of things. I want you to listen for how Mark describes the character of Jesus, what he's like, uh, the power that Jesus brings, and then think about the implications for us as you hear the passage, starting in Mark chapter 11, verse 1. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, uh, Jesus sent two of his disciples ahead and said to them, uh, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt, a uh, baby horse or a baby donkey in this case, tied onto which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. 
And if anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Uh, just say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away, and they found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And sure enough, some of them standing there said to them, what, what are you doing? Taking the colt away. And they said, well, they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus, and they threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches uh, that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who went after were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessing is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem, and, and he went into the temple. And when he did looked around at everything, it was already late. So he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Now, on the next day, as they were coming in from Bethany, he was hungry, Jesus was. And seeing in the distance of fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. But when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. It wasn't the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And then, then they came into Jerusalem. And Jesus entered into the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes, they, they heard this, and they were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him, because all the crowd was just astonished, amazed at his teaching. And then when evening came, they went back out of the city. And as they passed by the next morning again, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed, it's withered. Jesus said to them, have faith in God. Uh, truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Let's pray as we begin this morning. Jesus, I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds and our ears to hear what you have to say, to remind us of who we follow, of the power you bring, um, and how you recreate uh, who you are in each one of us. Thank you for this time. Thank you that you are alive, and that makes all the difference. It's in your name we pray. Amen.
look at three things this morning. I want to see the character of Jesus, the power he brings, and how that power recreates Jesus' character in us. His character, the power he brings, and how it regenerates his character in us. First, the character of Jesus. Uh, Jesus has been headed toward Jerusalem for a long time in Mark, if you've been following along. Almost half the book is him either in Jerusalem or going to it. And he's finally arrived. And it's everything in a way that you hoped for, right? There are people shouting. There are people praising. People are taking off their clothes and laying in front of him. This is a king entering his kingdom. And yet, there's something wrong, right? Uh, Every scene in every movie you've ever seen of a king, a conquering king coming in, what is he or she riding? He's riding a big, white, the biggest horse you've ever seen. It's got battle armor. He's got swords all over the place. Jesus has none of that. He's riding on a baby donkey or a baby horse, clopping slowly into the city. That's a weird juxtaposition, and it should make us uh, uneasy. Instead of a, a large white steed, it's like he's riding something that's more appropriate for a children's birthday party, which is the only other context I can think of someone riding a baby donkey at a petting zoo. And it's the juxtaposition of these contrasting qualities that shows Jesus' character to us. He is the conquering king. He deserves all the praise. And yet he's meek and lowly enough to be riding a donkey. He combines contrasting qualities in his character that we see no place else. It's majesty and meekness, power and weakness. Now, riding this baby donkey is something that we were told about a long time ago. Back in Zechariah 9.9, where it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So on one hand, it's, it's a throwback to that, but it, it's such a, a lowly form of entry. It makes him into a king that doesn't fit our expectations, uh, doesn't fit our parameters. And this, this double entry, this, this majesty and meekness combined is not just a throwback to prediction of what was going to come, but something that we see in the future. And in Revelation 5, verses 5 through 6, uh, the whole host of heaven is waiting uh, for the unleashing of, of what is going to come, and they all start weeping and wailing loudly because there's no one worthy to kick off the event. But then someone speaks up in Revelation 5, 5 through 6, and says, Weep no more. He's talking about Jesus here. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, 
I saw a lamb standing, a lamb as though it had been slain. And so yet again, uh, not just in the past, but here in, in Revelation and what's going to come, we see this strange juxtaposition of two things. Uh, now it's not just a king riding a donkey. Now it's a, a victorious lion and a killed, a slain lamb. He's both at the same time. He's both the lion and the lamb. He's the lion. He's the conquering king, the one who is here to execute justice. When you think of a lion, you think of, of kingship and ruling and carrying out of justice. But then he's also the lamb. He's the one that's killed, the sacrificer. So if the lion is, is the extension of justice, the lamb is the extender of grace. And so this character is, is one that's, that's majestic and meek, powerful and weak at the same time. And it's one that, that extends both infinite justice and infinite grace at the same time as the same person. So this is kind of weird, um, but awesome at the same time. It's Jesus' character that holds these extremes together. We've seen his character. Let's talk about the power he brings. In verse 15, we see Jesus enter into the temple area. And he enters uh, the court of the Gentiles, the, the court of the nations. This is the outermost section of the temple, the only place that the Gentiles can go and, and be close to God or to worship. It's the biggest part. And often we think too small when it comes to this area. Uh, you know, I think maybe, you know, a, a couple feet by a couple feet, but no, no, no. Um, one historian talks about 255,000 lambs being sold in this area in one Easter week. So instead of a small area, uh, we need to think of thousands of people all milling about, all selling and buying. Uh, the, the image that comes to my head is, is kind of the state fair of Texas, right before a large football game between OU and Texas. There's corn dogs, there's hot dogs, there's people selling t-shirts, funnel cakes. It's that kind of chaos, that kind of ruckus. And in the midst of that is where all the nations, the Gentiles, are expected to be able to find God. And what does Jesus do? He, he throws them out, right? In 16 and 17, we see him saying, my house should be called a prayer for the nations. And he's overturning tables and he's throwing people out. And in verse 18... This upsets the leadership. And everyone is amazed. And, and don't gloss over that word amazed. It's not just, oh, wow. It is like mind blown. Uh, everyone is shocked at what he's doing. And they're shocked because the popular belief at the time was that the Messiah would kick out all the foreigners from the temple. He would cleanse the temple, but he would cleanse the temple of the outsiders. Instead, he's clearing the ground for them. He's, he's uh, making space, making room. 
And if we look at a brief history of how the temple, how the sanctuary developed over time, we can see further why it's so shocking. The first one I can think of is back in the Garden of Eden. If you remember, they were in the garden with the presence of God. Everything was flourishing. Life was easy. They were with God all the time. And then uh, humankind chose their own way. They decided to build their lives on things other than God. And what happened? They were kicked out, right? And what guarded the way back in? Do you remember? We're told after they are kicked out of the garden, if they had any inclination of going back, there's a large flaming sword guarding the way back. Why, why a large flaming sword? Well, justice, I would argue. If, if I hurt someone, if I severely injure someone, right, justice needs to be carried out. I can't just say, oh, sorry get back into the sanctuary, to get back into the presence of God, justice has to be served. Something has to survive that sword. We'll never get back. And we move from the garden to the, the tabernacle and eventually the temple. And there's the same kind of structure there too, right? Because you have the, the core of the nations on the outside, but at the very core of the temple, you have the Holy of Holies, where God's presence resides, just like back in the garden. But separating the Holy of Holies from everywhere else is this large, thick veil. God's presence is in there, but you can't go past the veil, right? It's too dangerous. The only one that can is the priest once a year. And even when he does so, he needs to take a sacrifice in with him. You can't get back without exacting a cost, without justice being executed. So there's a problem. There's a barrier. And yet, in Zechariah, the same passage we already talked about, uh, the king coming on a donkey, on a baby donkey, Later in Zechariah, it talks about how uh, not just the vessels, the bowls, and the temple, or the Holy of Holies will be sacred, will be holy, but every pot in the country, all of them will be usable uh, to worship God. And the implication is uh, God's presence won't be locked in this little Holy of Holies any longer, but it will expand out and cover the earth. And we see this throughout the Old Testament. In Psalm 96, we hear about the trees singing because of the presence of God. In Isaiah 55, it's said that when God's presence comes back, the mountains will burst into song. And so what this seems to imply is the whole world is waiting for the presence of God to come back, to be redeemed, to be renewed. And if the plants and the mountains are waiting like this and can be transformed like this, what about you and me? So that's, that's a great promise, right? Not only will a king come on a donkey, but God's presence 
will cover the earth just like the waters of the sea, just like back in Eden. But we still have our problem, right? We still have the flaming sword. Which, of course, brings us back to our other passage, not Zechariah, but Revelation, right? Because he was a lion in Revelation, and he is a lamb. But what kind of lamb? He's a slain lamb. A killed lamb. So we can only conclude that if God's presence is going to abound, and but we have to deal with the sword, that's what Jesus does. He goes under the flaming sword, and it breaks his body, but at the same time, the sword breaks itself. And in the process, death dies. He dies on our behalf, and we'll see in a couple weeks how the veil is ripped from top to bottom, and access to God is open again. The sword is extinguished, and God's presence is available. You see, uh, someone once said that whenever evil is defeated, someone has to sacrifice. And that's what Jesus did. And the process of willingly sacrificing himself, uh, death itself will start working backwards, as C.S. Lewis says. This, and so what Jesus does by going under the sword is he brings God's presence to us in the form of the Holy Spirit, which I've already said makes trees sing and mountains dance and will renew and transform us. Which brings me to my last point. We've seen Jesus' character, how it's these, this odd dichotomy of majesty and meekness, power and weakness, uh, characteristics that we wouldn't expect. And we've seen that he brings power. He brings the presence of God into our lives. Now let's look and see how that power regenerates Jesus' character in us. If you read this passage once or twice, you realize a couple things. Uh, Jesus comes in with a triumphal entry. Instead of any real big party, he's like, oh, it's late, and goes back out. Uh, but the next day when he comes in and he's cleansing the temple, that's bracketed by a fig tree of all things. He comes in one day. If you remember, uh, he sees leaves. He goes, looks for fruit. It's not the season for fruit. Jesus pronounces judgment on it. Goes, cleanses the temple. Then we have the fig tree again, and it's withered, and that, that judgment is carried out. Now, first reaction is to say, well, this isn't really fair. It's not the time for figs. Why is Jesus upset? Well, it, I did a little fig tree research because I knew nothing about figs before this. I know little about grass. I know less about fig trees. There are actually two different times fig trees produce figs or fruit. The first is normal figs that you see and you can buy at the grocery store, that kind of stuff. There's another uh, type of fruit. As the leaves come in, there are nodules that travelers would pick off as they walk by and snack on. Not real, real figs, but they're edible little buds. Usually these come out when the leaves do, and so that's likely what Jesus was looking for. And so when he saw leaves, he expected that they would be there. 
And by sandwiching the temple in between this, this fig tree story, we have another sandwich story that Mark loves doing. And there's a parallel, obviously, between the temple and the fig tree. Uh, Jesus sees leaves, and he's like, oh, let me get some fruit, but finds nothing, which means the fig tree is somehow diseased or damaged or broken. It's not doing what it's supposed to. And the same thing is true with the temple. The temple is supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations, but it's malfunctioning. It's not serving its purpose. The temple is busy, mind you. It's very active. But it's not producing fruit, just like the fig tree. So the question for me, as I've been thinking about this week, and the question for you, is do you see God's presence, the Holy Spirit, in your life? Uh, are you fearful? What's your go-to move? Are you angry? Are you, are you overly confident? What's one of your defining character traits? Uh, we all have something that we struggle with. For me, it's competitiveness. I always want to win. That's just the way I'm wired. But if the Holy Spirit is in my life, then people who know me well should see change. They should say, yeah, Mike's like that, but he's not the person he used to be. He's changing. He's being regenerated. It's not just a one-sided coin. There's another side to him that wasn't there before. So the people who know you, do, those, do they see you being changed by the Holy Spirit? Or are you just busy? Look for how Jesus' character is being regenerated in you. Everyone has uh, some kind of default, like I said. Uh, my sisters-in-law love the Enneagram stuff. They're always talking about you're a number three or a number nine. Before that, it was Myers-Briggs. And those define some traits, but they usually define one set. And, and Jesus in the gospel uh, produces this odd dichotomy. This, this set of traits you won't find in anyone else who doesn't know Jesus, who doesn't have the Holy Spirit. You see, every other religion, every other system of belief other than Christianity says uh, you are saved by your attempts at morality. Do X, Y, and Z and you will be okay. Water your lawn, put fertilizer down, your grass will be green. Uh, meditate daily and these you will benefit. It's always a striving. But those odd combos won't be combined. You may make some progress, but you won't have boldness and humility. You won't have majesty and meekness. You won't have power and weakness. Let me, let me explain what I mean. You're going to be one side or the other without Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Uh, there's some standard you're trying to live up to, and either if you're living up to the standard, you're going to be confident. You're going to be like, yeah, I've got it together. But that means you're not going to be compassionate to others. You'll be confident, but you won't have compassion. And if you're failing against the standard, 
you have the opposite. You'll be compassionate because you understand that it's hard. You understand that it's a struggle. But you won't feel emboldened. You won't feel confident to step out and stand up. You won't have the power. You'll have the weakness. You'll have enthusiasm. You have compassion without enthusiasm and confidence. But if you center yourself on being radically loved by what Jesus has done, despite your flaws, and if your relationship with God depends on Jesus and not you or what you're doing, then you actually have both, right? You are humbled by the gospel because you know that you are bad enough that he had to die for you. But you're emboldened by the gospel at the same time uh, because you know that you were valuable enough that he was glad to die for you. That's the tension that the Holy Spirit recreates from Jesus' character in you as he renews you in Jesus' image. Now, do you feel this tension? Can other people see that working out in you? Or, or are you just busy going about the process of worship? having the appearance of following Jesus without the transformation of his presence. We need to remember that Jesus is the source, that he is the center of our standing. And Jesus won't settle until he is, by the way. Look at what he's doing in the story this morning. He's forcing people's hands, right? He's riding in as king. He's turning over the tables. He's, he's throwing people out. He's not content with form. He's going to renew things back to the way they should be. It's an extreme action that requires from them and from us an extreme response. We either have to put him in the center of our lives and crown him, or we have to kill him. He has to be our everything or our nothing. He will not stay quietly on the outskirts of our lives. He has to be at the center, at the core, transforming us from the inside out. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you are bewildering, that you combine things that we don't see possible, that you are majestic and that you are meek. You are the king of the universe, but you came as one of us and you rode in um, as a king on a, a baby donkey of all things. Thank you that you um, carry out infinite justice and infinite grace at the same time. I pray that especially during these next few weeks, as things are opening back up and we have a tendency to be busy, that you would give us the space and the time uh, to be with you, uh, to be humbled by what you've done and emboldened by your sacrifice as well. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would uh, come in and take over in our lives, transform us into Jesus' character. Bless us that we may be a blessing to others. In your name we pray. Jesus, amen.